Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, it's a busy time at the state capitol as lawmakers prepare for the May 20th session deadline. A local filmmaker is asking for the public's help to finish his documentary on the Jacob Wetterling abduction and its grape-growing season for Minnesota's wineries and vineyards. But first, guilty of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. That's the jury's verdict this week in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Muhammad Noor in the fatal shooting of Justine Damon. Damon's father reportedly wept when the verdict was read, and the father of the defendant covered his face with his hands. A third-degree murder conviction carries a sentence of up to 25 years. Noor was found not guilty of second-degree murder. This is a tragic shooting that did not have to happen and should not have happened. It was a case that received international attention as Damon was a dual U.S.-Australian citizen. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman says the jury got it right. He did say, however, the investigation into the shooting was rocky in the early stages on the part of Minneapolis police and the BCA. We needed to make sure that we showed all our warts as well as all our good work. And we're not going to let the defense suggest that this was a whitewash or this was terrible from start to finish. Because, frankly, although it was a little weak in the beginning, everyone made up for it at the end. Freeman says his relationship with the MPD has been rebuilt since the beginning of the investigation. Freeman answered his critics who suggest he won't charge white cops who shoot black people, but will charge black cops who shoot white people. That simply is not true. Race has never been a factor in any of my decisions and never will be. Freeman reflected on the verdict. It does not give us pleasure to call out police wrongdoing. But when it occurs, it is our job to let the public know, and in extreme cases, to bring charges and prosecution. Today and over the last year, we have done our job and done it well. This is a solid jury verdict, and we believe it will be upheld on appeal. The question of race and its impact on this particular case was on the mind of community activist Mel Reeves after the verdict was read. Anytime the police take someone's life, especially when they're unarmed, non-threatening, they should be held accountable. They should be prosecuted. This should happen every time. What makes this different and stand out is the fact that this so seldom happens. It's, you know, it's like, wow, really? Somebody actually got put on trial, right? But then we understand why, because we live in a society and which, and again, as I say this, this is not just Mel Reeves talking. These are the rules in our society. White life has always been held as more precious than black life. And so uh, we have a guy who's not just black, he's an immigrant, he's Muslim. I don't think he's going to get a whole lot of sympathy from maybe a jury that's been, been, you know, afflicted by that the American prejudices against people who are black, who are immigrant, right, and who are Muslim. So uh, the likelihood of him, him uh, uh, suffering some consequences is going to be high. After the verdict, John Ruschek gave a statement and said it's been a painful journey from that July night in 2017 when his daughter was killed. Justine was killed by a police officer an agent of the state. We believe he was properly charged with a crime. The jury has returned a verdict of guilty on murder three and manslaughter two. We are satisfied with the outcome. Ruschek did have some harsh criticism, however, for how the investigation into his daughter's death was handled. The conviction was reached 
Despite the active resistance of a number of Minneapolis officers, including the head of their union, and either active resistance or gross incompetence of the BCA, particularly at the beginning of the investigation. And after the verdict, Justine's fiancé, Don Damon, spoke to reporters and had this question. Ironically, the Minneapolis Police Department emblem on the squad door reads, to protect with courage and to serve with compassion. Where were these values that night? In a statement, Minneapolis Police Chief Madaria Arredondo apologized to the Ruschek and Damon families, calling the shooting a sad and tragic incident. He went on to say, quote, As chief, I will ensure that the MPD learns from this case, and we will be in spaces to listen, learn, and do all we can to help our communities in healing. Moving forward, I remain committed to all communities. The MPD has taken an oath to serve by continuing to build trust, by focusing on our procedural justice efforts, Through collaboration and partnerships with all of our stakeholders, I'm hopeful that we will strengthen our community wellness and safety. End of quote. As for the BCA's role in the investigation, Governor Tim Walz said it's something that warrants further scrutiny. We have asked for and we're getting all the evidence in in the the background on where this came from. First of all, let me say this is a tragic situation and to to the family involved, uh, a a loss of a daughter, um, a sister, horrific. I think it's for us to understand what are the processes that were there. I know this came out in the trial. Our commitment is, and and a a perfect segue to where we're at on this, we expect those practices to be best practices. We expect them to follow the law and the processes. I need to understand what went happened here and what brought up those accusations and to understand um, whether we can validate them. And if we do, what are the processes to move to, to alleviate that? Justine's fiance, Don, says ultimately the case is about Justine. He says she lived to teach about love. She lived to teach us about our own human potential. She taught us to live joyfully. She taught us to to laugh. And she demonstrated what it means to live from the heart. She was a living example of compassion. In her life, she committed to transform humanity. And her legacy is continuing that work today. Noor is set to be sentenced on June 7th. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Things are starting to churn at the Minnesota legislature with lawmakers now staring at a May 20th adjournment deadline that's barely over two weeks away. MNN's Bill Warner brings us up to date. Scott, let's start out with guns, an issue that has come up time and again at the Minnesota legislature over the years. 
House Democrats this week passed a public safety bill which includes background checks on gun sales and a so-called red flag law, which would allow weapons to be taken away from someone if a judge determines they're a risk to themselves or others. It officially sets up a battle with Republicans who control the Minnesota Senate. House Speaker Melissa Hortman says... We are bringing this to negotiations, and I intend to fight for these provisions until the very last minute of the very last day. But Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says... It's a non-starter for the Senate. On the other side, Governor Tim Walz, who said after a weekend out turkey hunting... I was with folks who were gun owners. These are folks that understand that common sense reforms do not crimp your Second Amendment rights, nor your ability to purchase firearms in a, in a lawful manner. And the Reverend Nancy Nord Bentz with the group Protect Minnesota says they're going to continue to work until we pass what she calls these sensible laws. If it happens now, wonderful, terrific, we will save lives this year. If it doesn't happen now, we will remember who didn't vote for it. And we will make sure that we are replacing them in the next election. Also this week. There being 66 ayes and 65 nays, the motion prevails. The amendment is adopted. The Minnesota House narrowly approved a measure as part of a larger budget bill that would prohibit a wolf hunting and trapping season in the state. That in anticipation of the federal government lifting protections for the wolf in the lower 48 states. Governor Walls said this week he supports that move. We're seeing this, especially the western states, of a full delisting and a full open hunt season on that. I, I am very hesitant on that. Backers of a hunting season argue Minnesota's wolf population is robust, and they say farmers are being hurt by the animal preying on their livestock. The governor says... I do think because of the nature um, of our wolves that you can have the selective hunts to manage the population. I don't think that's a place where, where the sport hunting is, is, is appropriate. But wolf advocates will likely have difficulty prohibiting an open season on the animal because there appears to be no movement on that issue in the Minnesota Senate. Let's move on to the big budget bills, which the Minnesota House and Senate finished passing this week in preparation for end-of-session budget negotiations, which lawmakers hope will produce an agreement by the May 20th deadline for the legislature to adjourn. Republicans and Democrats have major differences over state funding of E-12 public schools. Senator Carla Nelson from Rochester says the GOP measure is the largest education spending bill in Minnesota history. There is nearly $940 million of increased spending over our current biennium's spending for education. But Democrat Chuck Weger from Maplewood says that bill does not do enough. This does not fully fund schools. It is not a generous commitment. It is inadequate. And on another big issue... Do not make health care more expensive in our state. Said Minnesota Senate Republicans this week as they turned back Democrats' attempt to continue the health care provider tax, which is scheduled to sunset. Minneapolis Democrat Jeff Hayden warns loss of that revenue will not only have a grave impact on health care access for some Minnesotans... But it's also going to put the pressure that we know is happening in other parts of our budget because the general fund will have to come into play to supplement that. But Rochester Republican Carla Nelson says if the 2% health care provider tax continues... It would immediately undo the work that we have worked so hard to just minimally bend the cost curve. But just over a month ago, Governor Walls said to Republicans... The provider tax is not going to expire. Walls also wants to make health insurance through Minnesota Care available to all residents regardless of income, what he calls One Care. 
Ham Lake Senator Michelle Benson responds, Republicans want the state human services department first to make sure that ineligible people do not stay on state programs. They need to get their house in order before we can even think about doing the governor's One Care program. But when asked whether Republicans would allow the governor any path toward One Care, Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka flat out said no, because he says Republicans believe it's the wrong way to go. The governor contends the state's collective negotiating power is the best way to bring down health care costs. Republicans argue a free market system is the only way to do it. And finally this week, a status check on yet another big sticking point in the state budget, road and bridge funding. Minnesota's gasoline tax would go up 20 cents a gallon under a transportation budget bill. The Democrat-controlled Minnesota House passed. Crookston Republican Deborah Keel says one business owner warned her what will happen. I go to North Dakota to get tobacco. I go to North Dakota to get something else, and then I just fill my gas tank. And all of a sudden, I'm shopping across the river. Minneapolis Democrat Frank Hornstein responds, gasoline prices have gone up 70 cents a gallon since January. He says all that money is going to oil companies. Where's the outrage about that? We have a plan where this modest gas tax increase, the money stays right here in our local communities. House Speaker Melissa Hortman says, I don't plan on leaving the building until we have long-term sustainable funding for transportation. But Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says about a gas tax increase. No. We have a bill that uh, lowers the gas tax 20 cents. If we compromise between the 20 cents up and the 20 cents down, we're at a perfect spot. No gas tax increase. So here we go, Scott. T-minus two weeks and counting. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The crew behind a documentary on the 1989 kidnapping of Jacob Wetterling has started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money to help them finish the project. Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. Minnesota filmmaker Chris Newberry and his team began working on the film in 2015 and now have four years of edit-read material but need some financial backing to move the project forward. Chris, tell us a little bit about the film and where you're at at this point. Uh, sure, absolutely. So uh, we've been working on the film for about three and a half years now. It's uh, it's the in-depth story of what happened to Jacob Wetterling. We, uh, we were on the ground filming as some of the big uh, some of the big events happened in the in the past few years in the case, and and it's just uh, we, we wanted to tell the full story and and give. Uh, give Jacob's story the full documentary treatment. And so pushing forward, where are we at in the process? Yeah, so we are uh, just, as I said, we've been filming for about three years, so we've got all this uh, amazing raw material collected. And uh, now is the time when we uh, try and jump into the editing room and craft it into a story. So that's where we stand right now, and uh, this is where the expenses start to pile up for an independent film, and that's why we're reaching out for community support to try and help us get a little closer to the finish line. And then uh, in addition to doing kind of online, I know that you're planning a five-city fundraising tour. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we wanted to take a multi-prong approach to the fundraising, uh, try and get as much support as we can. So, yeah, we have the GoFundMe going, and uh, then we're doing the uh, physical events in uh, five cities where 
doing trailer release parties. So uh, what we've done is we've uh, taken some of our material and put together a brand new trailer. It's something that uh, it's material that no one's seen before, so it'll be a a first look, a sneak peek at it at each party. Uh, and we'll, I'll be at each event also. I'll be uh, doing a little Q&A with the audience and pulling back the curtain a little bit on the filmmaking process. And then we'll also have a representative from an organization at, at some at some uh, some of the parties that will actually be the Jacob Weatherling Resource Center who will be attending. But uh, we'll have someone talking a little bit about uh, work that the organizations do uh, to help at-risk children. And uh, each each event is at a, a local craft brewery in each city, and uh, so it, it should be a fun time. And, you know, this project, I think I had read, uh, began back in about 2015, and, and did you work with the family at all on this, Chris? Yes, yes. It, it was very important to me to uh, get the blessing of, uh, of Jacob's parents, Patty and Jerry Weiterling, before we started. And uh, they've been, um, it was even ju- just as important to me to uh, hear the story in their words. So we spent many hours on several occasions behind the scenes with them, filming one-on-one to get their uh, intimate perspective on everything. What kind of sparked your passion for um, creating this documentary? Well, I'm a Minnesota kid. I was born and raised in Minnesota, and I was 14 years old when Jacob was abducted, so I remember it really vividly. It really touched me back in 1989 when it happened. And uh, as the years went by and this, this uh, mystery has kind of been hanging over all of us, it's always stuck with me. And so when 2014 rolled around, that's the, that was the 25-year mark, they, there was a billboard campaign with uh, Jacob's face, and I remember the words, still missing. And that's when it occurred to me, wow, I don't know that anyone's actually ever done a proper long-form in-depth documentary documentary film about this story. And so at that point, of course, I was imagining it would be a reflective documentary looking at this this, uh, 25-year mystery, and I couldn't have ever anticipated that, uh, you know, these these, uh, arrests, the arrest and the... uh, eventual confession were going to be happening right in front of our eyes. You know, when we talk a little bit about kind of um, finishing this project, do you have a dollar amount uh, that you're hoping to raise or kind of a target? Yeah, so the, our goal right now is to get uh, get in the editing room and then get to a rough cut, which will hopefully open other doors. And our, our fundraising goal for uh, the GoFundMe to help us get into the, uh, get, get through that, that uh, stretch of time is 60000 So that's our GoFundMe goal. And we're actually off to a really great start. We were just uh, six days in, and we've just crossed the $9,000 mark from 125 backers. So, you know, it's very encouraging, but we still have a long way to go. And I'm always quick to point out that every little bit counts, even if, you know, all you have to spare is 20 or 30 bucks. It really makes a difference, and I, I, I think that those those types of donations those are, going, are going to be the ones that get us over the top, just a groundswell of community support from a lot of different people. And the GoFundMe page, uh, how do people find it? Obviously on the GoFundMe site, but is it under a specific uh, subheading or title? Yes, yeah, so you can find it a couple of different ways. You could go to GoFundMe.com slash Jacob Film, but I also encourage anybody 
who's interested to check out the film website, which is jacobwetterlingfilm.com. And at, at our site uh, there, you can, you can donate at the GoFundMe, and you can also um, learn more about our five-city tour, which starts on May 1st. Thanks again to my guest, Minnesota filmmaker Chris Newberry. For more information on the Wetterling documentary, you can head to jacobwetterlingfilm.com. Again, that address is jacobwetterlingfilm.com. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, and son. Learn fast, F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save. Your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911. F-A-S-T, face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of... Your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn FAST, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on, because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother... Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesotans are seeing more and more signs of spring pop up as the calendar heads into the month of May. One of those sure signs is the start of growing season for Minnesota's farm wineries. Reporter J.W. Cox caught up with one farmer on the cusp of the season of renewal. Here we sit enjoying the shade. Hey brother, pour the wine. Drink the drink that I have made. Hey brother, pour the wine. That's exactly what Jenny Ellenbecker called this time of year, Scott, all about renewal. No matter the winter behind us, with bud break in sight on the vines at Round Lake Vineyards and Winery in southwest Minnesota, Ellen Becker says that means new seasons and new possibilities are on the way. Most of us are all done pruning, so in the winter months we prune all our vines back because you only get fruit off of new wood. So now we're just finishing up the last little touches before we have um, bud break, which should be happening here. And then we all hope that we don't have any frost because once the buds are open and we have frost, it kind of harms the vines a little bit. Grape vines are bred to withstand the cold. Some are more cold-hardy than others. We go out and halfway through the cold months, we cut some of the vines and bring them in and test to see where we're at to see if we have some winter damage or not. We were kind of luckier. I don't know if you want to say lucky or not, but we had more snow right away, so that kind of insulated the ground. We did see some winter damage on some of them, but it's always Minnesota varieties. You're training and pulling up new and laying down different branches anyway, and it's always renewal. That's the time of spring. While not as prevalent, perhaps, as other types of farming across the state and in the Midwest, Ellen Becker says as they head into growing season, a lot of their work looks similar to the folks who are growing the more traditional thought-of crops. Looking at the vines, seeing what the spring is going to be wet, so we know if we need to spray for fungus and taking care of there's some flaxera. There's certain times of year that you need to spray those so that you don't have to fight through them throughout the year. Uh, Checking to make sure you have underneath the vines. Everyone likes to keep it nice and 
um, black soil, so be making sure that the weeds don't get in there. And then when they start to bud and bud break, we'll do walk through the vines and we'll start tucking and watching them. Hopefully they keep growing and we avoid that frost. Similar to other types of farming, Ellen Becker says her industry has indeed changed in a number of ways since she started her operation. Chief among the changes, things are just getting bigger. There's quite a few uh, large vineyards going up. Uh, When we first started in 2007, they weren't very commercial. There wasn't a lot that had acres and acres. We see more of that um, 20-acre vineyards, 30-acre vineyards. And then we still have the hobbyists that have, you know, 10 vines in their backyard, so it's a a wide variety. just depends on what interests and what the growers are looking to do or how much they're going to sell. And it's great that we have the University of Minnesota and private breeders that are developing new varieties. It's not just all really sweet wines that everybody's been used to. We have some Itasca, which is developed by the University of Minnesota, is going to be a nice dryer like a Sauvignon Blanc. It's fun to see those new varieties coming forward. While the daily tasks surrounding the growing of the grapes, raising them up, harvesting the crop, and turning out the wine are central to her operation, Ellen Becker says they and other vineyards like theirs in the state know there is another aspect to their business that requires their attention, namely tourism. It's a large industry for agritourism because as uh, Minnesota farm wineries uh, have to be out in the local setting and we draw a lot lot of people out for that agritourism business to come out and experience the wineries. Most wineries have, you know, food available or different events or we team up with others and have maybe um, vendor shows or craft fairs or just make our own parties and festivals throughout the summer month. A simple look on Explore Minnesota's calendar page for this weekend shows a handful of wine-related events across the state as warm weather season approaches. Ellen Becker says at Round Lake Vineyards, they're open throughout the winter, but she knows the events that are the biggest draw for folks occur in the other three seasons. Quite a few of us have a harvest party or a grape stomp, but then throughout the summer we have a summer bash that we have that's a great summertime and food and then we even do a um, seafood boil that we have next weekend. Now would be a great chance to get out there. Um, There's wineries out there that also, um, we have a lot of award-winning wines. They're all unique. They're fun. Some have breweries with them. Some also have a distillery with them on site. So everybody offers their own uniqueness. And as with any other outdoor activity or tourism opportunity across the state of Minnesota, Ellen Becker says she and other farmers like her are always willing to welcome one more, or two, or three, or four. You get the picture. There's quite a few resources to go online. You can Google, you know, to find out your local winery that's close to you or try to expand and check. you got the Minnesota Girl that lists everybody. Um, MGGA has a... Minnesota Passport, where you can buy and go through and taste at 10 different wineries and get a free tasting, so that's fun. Um, Check and see. A lot of us have music offered on Sundays, summer Fridays, and Saturdays. The possibilities are endless of where you can go with different wineries, and it's so much fun because every winery is different, offers a unique, different setting and atmosphere. For business and for pleasure, and even for those new experiences, Ellen Becker reiterated Minnesota's farm wineries provide a unique picture of the renewal that we are all ready to see by the time we finally put winter to bed.
Scott, back to you. Thank you for that report, JW. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.